Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the brief a short, sharp snapshot of the region's policy landscape. The Brief is a podcast coming out of Policy Forum at the Crawford School at ANU, and you can catch us on Twitter, Apps Policy Forum, Facebook, the Asia-Pacific Policy Society, or chuck us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. My name is Edwina Landale, and this week we're shining a light on your vices as we tackle the public policy behind smoking, vaping, and getting wasted. It's been a long time since the thought of smoking conjured an image of an Audrey Hepburn-like figure elegantly blowing out clouds of smoke. The mental picture we get now is more like the images on cigarette packets, an emaciated cancer patient on a hospital bed or a gangrenous foot. There's no denying that smokers are a dying breed, and that taking a drag on a ciggy is going out of fashion. At a council meeting just last week, North Sydney Mayor Jilly Gibson put forward the idea to make the CBD the first smoke-free business district in Australia. The smoking ban is on track to be in effect by early next year. This comes at an interesting time for the tobacco industry. Last week also saw a failed push to overturn Australia's vaping ban from big tobacco. As space for smoking dwindles, interest groups are keen to make room for e-cigarettes. But why should we care about a small Sydney CBD going smoke-free and a failed lobby attempt? Well, because it raises some big questions about how public spaces can be used and the conflict between public health and individual rights. With us to clear the air on some of these issues is Professor Simone Dennis. Simone is a senior lecturer in anthropology at ANU College of Arts and Social Sciences and has written extensively on the nature and impacts of smoking. Her book, Smoke Free, A Social, Moral and Political Atmosphere, examines smoke-free spaces and makes her an ideal guest for this topic. Thank you for joining us today, Simone. Thank you. So we're seeing a lot more smoke-free spaces, not just in Australia, but world over. Where does this push for smoke-free spaces come from exactly? Mm. It's particularly um, obvious in Australia, isn't it, that it's very hard now to smoke in public space. And we have a relationship with three other countries um, primarily, UK, US and Canada, um, who tend to copy our policy because it is quite world-leading and aggressive. We tend to do some pretty serious things with smoke. But that public space legislation came in around a change in how smoking was conceptualised as dangerous a couple of decades ago when at first, when we first started to see those campaigns around the health damage that smoking could do, it was very much focused on what it could do to you as an individual. So you breathe this stuff in and it does, you know, invisible stuff inside your body. So we started to see campaigns that showed the insides of those bodies as as a kind of medical facticity. But that rapidly changed a couple of decades ago when we started to understand the the dangers of passive smoke. 
and how smoking could damage others. And this became a very high public health priority to stave off the damage that smoking could do to other people. And so the whole campaign changed um, around the dangers that that could present to other people. And initially, it was very much constrained to the indoors, to enclosed environments. Um, So this is when we started to see the phasing out of smoking indoors in pubs and clubs and in other spaces that were were semi-enclosed and enclosed. But it rapidly moved into the outdoors. So now it's not uncommon, especially in Australia, to see beaches and parks and other spaces that are completely unenclosed to be designated outdoors public smoke-free places. And there's an increasing amount of those. And there's going to be more of them as time goes on. So that means that we've got very few spaces where smokers can legally smoke. And really, they can only smoke now on public land. So we make a distinction between public space and public land. So public land is that interstitial space that no one really owns. It's the edge of the road, the alleyway, you know, those kinds of spaces that are All essentially... All spaces. Yeah. Um, and so that that's a bit interesting because alongside this, of course, smoking has been marginalised and turned from a social habit into something that's dirty and disgusting, partly because it presents a danger to others. So if you're one of those people doing that endangering thing, you're also publicly marked as such by occupying those spaces, which tend to be occupied or ready by the marginalised. So what exactly is the impact of this marginalisation of smokers on the different socioeconomic or geographic yeah, populations that's, yeah, that's in Australia? Question. So we've we've been a really successful country in terms of bringing down the smoking rate. We have excellent smoking cessation rate. So we're, we're almost into single digits now in Australia and in Canberra in particular, it's been very successful, but it hasn't been successful across the board. So it's worked very well with the white middle classes who've, who've accomplished this great rate of cessation, but it hasn't worked so well in socio- socioeconomically marginalised groups and with Indigenous groups, with migrants. So those populations have tended to be the populations that we marginalise and the impact on them is therefore higher. So if you're already in a marginalised group and then you have to wear these kinds of marginalisations and those those marginalisations can look like anything from uh, a monetary sort of a fine for breaching a smoking um, public space to much more common interactions with the public like being spat on or being yelled at or being um, abused in the street in various ways for, for spreading danger essentially. So you can imagine how that might be if you're already a marginalised body to also have that impact um, placed on you by this legislation. So it's it's had a series of unintended consequences for those marginalised groups and I think we have to worry about that. In terms of alcohol which similarly has detrimental health effects and arguably is more damaging to the public space around it. Are we seeing a similar level of attention upon the consumption of alcohol as we do on tobacco? We're starting to um, in a number of different frameworks and and situations. So um, there's been a whole hullabaloo recently about things like one punch attacks, which are often closely related to alcohol. We're starting to see a whole lot of um, legislation that pertains to public space about lockout laws and we're starting to see pricing policy moves and all of this kind of stuff, um, which is interesting. Alcohol differs in a number of ways. So unlike the tobacco lobby, the alcohol industry can safely say that 
alcohol consumption has some benefits. It can be about conviviality. It can be about the ways in which people come together socially. It can have positive effects. Um, there's even been arguments about health effects and the way it can offer, some alcohol can offer protections to people in heart health and all that kind of thing. But in Australia, the laws regarding alcohol have tended to be based on the idea of the amount of consumption. And so our responsible drinking platforms are all around how much someone has. Now, that is very flawed in my view because the ethnographic record around the world shows that the countries who have the least alcohol problems tend to be the ones who drink the most. And that is because, largely it seems, that in those countries with the least alcohol problems, alcohol is not marked off in time and space as a particular and specific thing that you do outside of work, that you do on the weekend, that you do in a special space. In these countries, which tend to be European, alcohol is implicated and seamlessly integrated throughout the day and throughout public spaces. And so there is no sense that someone has that when they go for a drink, they're in a time that's completely separate and away from the responsibilities of work and social life and family life. When you get that situation, you tend to get people behaving in very different ways than they would say in the workplace or in the home. That doesn't happen in these countries with low alcohol problems. And the key point is that it's never related to volume. So in our case in Australia, we've legislated around volume the most, but that doesn't appear to be the place where we should legislate, and it certainly isn't related to alcohol violence. So alcohol violence tends to be related around marking alcohol consumption off, which we do very much, right? We, we like to constrict the spaces where people can drink and we like to constrict the time. That's where the legislation has been put, but it hasn't had any effects that are anything like reducing alcohol violence. So yes, we are putting a lot of attention to that as a state, but we're probably putting it in the wrong place. So it should be more about changing social attitudes, educating people. It's, it's a difficult thing to change, but there is a great deal of evidence to show the harder that you press down on the punitive elements of that kind of change response, the worse things get. So they, they don't tend to work and they haven't worked in other places where this has been tried. But what can be changed is kind of the role of alcohol and the way that it might be um, somewhat ironically loosened in terms of the way we legislate around it. That tends to have the positive effects and has in other countries. You mentioned the the enforcement aspect of this as well, which I find really interesting because the proposed smoke-free CBD in North Sydney and a lot of the public spaces that have smoke-free rules are self-enforced spaces. Yeah. And I don't really know what that means or like how that actually works because it seems like a silly idea to me. It doesn't seem like something that would be adopted. Does that work well? It has kind of worked well because it, as you can imagine, it's pretty confronting to be... Uh, I guess abused is the word that I would use in the street in various ways. And so in my research, which has been going now for 20 years, it's really common for people to change their smoking practice so that they don't take cigarettes to work anymore and smoke at lunchtime. They might smoke at home. You know, so the the smoking tends not to stop for those people. It tends to be put into other kinds of spaces. And a very large proportion of that has got to do with the way that you are treated if you are a smoker. So it's increasingly likely that you will be marginalised in those ways. And indeed, the state has relied upon and in fact made a call for people, for citizenry, to assist in this smoke-free space. But not they didn't call for people to abuse each other, but they did make very clear that 
that this was a habit that needed to be broken for the good of the public. And so in all the policy documents um, that relate to smoke-free legislation in public space, there is um, very strongly worded passages that suggest that the public will be the group of people who do the work on behalf of the state to get people to stop. So in that sense, it's been incredibly effective. Are you personally pro-smoking? No, I'm not pro or anti. I'm trying to understand what it's like to live as a smoker and indeed as a non-smoker in a highly legislated environment that is very obvious and obviously has a lot of public purchase right in the space. So that hasn't really been done before. Most of the research that's been done here is either about trying to bring about smoking cessation or it's trying to be about a libertarian kind of platform for smokers and about rights and the and broader rights about what we are and are not allowed to do perhaps in, in a nanny state. So I'm not interested in either of those sides of the debate except insofar as they frame what's going on here. I'm, I'm interested in seeing what happens, what are the consequences of that polarisation, um, what happens to people who are practising something that is still essentially a legal practice in an increased increasingly legislated environment. So I'm not pro or anti, I'm just interested. And how does Australia differ from other nations in the region in terms of... Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. How it legislates and approaches smoking issues. So Australia is and would describe itself as a world leader. It's got a very aggressive set of policies and it's it's always trying to develop new ones, everything from price point to public space to packaging, advertising, all of that sort of stuff. Um, And that has had much more purchase in those partner countries of the UK, Canada, US than it has with our regional neighbours, which obviously have a very different smoking profile from our own. Um, and that has now become those those sort of Southeast Asian and, and generally Asian countries that have very much higher smoking rates than Australia and a different pattern for smoking have become targets for research. A lot of the time by Australian researchers who are increasingly seeing this as a massive world health problem that we have to stamp out. It's been very difficult to do because some of the same reps that are tobacco company reps are also pharmaceutical company reps. They might sit on the same boards. This might be very tricky to get done. And we don't have the same legislative platforms that enable us to do and have those public health conversations in quite the same way. And that comes down to an interesting kind of definition of health. So we've seen this in Australia where for Indigenous Australians, there is a, an assumption that Indigenous Australians do not know that smoking is bad for them, which I have found to be a completely baseless assumption, but it has resulted in a lot of very specific advertising to get people to understand that. I haven't found anyone who doesn't understand that yet. But it relies, those distinctions rely on very different conceptions of health and what health is supposed to mean to you. So health is a kind of unassailable value, right, that we all want. No one doesn't want to have good health. 
But when we make up research and policy, we tend to rely on a really culturally specific version of health. And this is not to say that Indigenous Australians or anyone else doesn't want to have health, but we fail to examine what that concept means for them. And then when we do these programmatic approaches, they, they tend to have the same result, which is not much shift in the Indigenous smoking rate. And we might expect to see that problem replicated in our near neighbours if we were to implement the same kind of policy platforms. In terms of addressing smoking as a public health issue, do you think that banning it from public spaces is a good way to go about that? It's been, as I have suggested, it's been um, welcomed by the white middle class public as well, this is a menace that needs to be reduced and we it's, it's had a huge public support. So it's not a case where the state's imposed something and the public has gone, wait a minute, that's not okay. They've been very much on board and central to its success. But it it doesn't gel very well with some of the well-known characteristics and profiles of secondhand smoke. So essentially what that means is that secondhand smoke isn't very dangerous in the outdoors. And so there is no menace to correct in the outdoors. You would have to be downwind of a group of smokers. There would have to be you know, sufficient air saturation and density of smoke in the air for people to be affected. And they'd have to stay for a long time in order to get enough smoke to cause damage. So in that sense, it isn't relevant in terms of staving off a particular threat. And indeed, the government hasn't relied on that particular set of facts to do this. It's relied on the horrible smell of smoke, which has also undergone a radical transition from being maybe quite a pleasant smell in the 1970s to now that's the that's the waft of a dangerous menace that will, will give you cancer. And so that's an interesting thing that's come up in my fieldwork as well, that very often the abuse that's held is people saying things like, hey, don't, br- don't breathe that on me. I do not want your cancer. So cancer has become understood as a sort of communicable disease that you could get in the street if you, if you were to inhale a mouthful of smoke. So we also see this third-hand smoke. Ah, oh, third-hand smoke is really interesting. Yes. Yeah. What is that exactly? Third-hand smoke is residual smoke that uh, lingers on your body and on your hair and on your clothes long after you've extinguished your cigarette. And it is the next menace. It's understood to be inexpungible. You can't get it off you. So once it's on you, it stays like an invisible sheen. The research around it is is not very good or comprehensive at the moment, but because they don't know how long its life is, they assume it's a very long time. So once you are contaminated with that sheen, you can contaminate other people. So there is now fourth-hand smoke, which is what you can get if you have brushed up against, touched or been in proximity, even with a smoker's breath, you can be contaminated and you can pass that on. And so you get fifth, sixth, all these kinds of things. And so it's got this tenacity as a substance, right? Um, And indeed, some not very good research has been done around particular cities in the US testing for residual third-hand smoke um, in public spaces, like on traffic light buttons or on particular you know, places in the in the city um, to see if it could be still there and to see if people could pick it up. And so that also has the the possibility of rejigging who's allowed in public space, you know. So if you are wanting a job as a waiter or someone, you know, who's in circulation among the public, you would not be given one if you were a smoker. And not just now, but if you had ever been, because it would be assumed that your sheen would remain. So there have been sackings, there have been court cases um, around this, and they have been by and large successful. So one uh, great demonstration of that is when I stayed in California for a time doing some research, and there was a plaque in the foyer of the hotel where I was staying in California, and it said, sometime ago in the last few decades, this hotel had uh, a smoking 
permissibility. So you could smoke in your rooms. And while we have taken out all the soft furnishings and repainted, there is still a danger that you could be impacted by third-hand smoke that lodged here many decades ago. And it was a classic case of the Hotel California. You smoke and check in, but it can never leave. And so you may well be impacted by this terrible menace that remains in the walls. We don't know if third-hand smoke is dangerous. We know it's a thing. We know we can see it or test for it, but we don't know what impact it has on humans. Do you see the same attitude towards sort of residual danger with, for instance, vaping? Because I think that's a very different sensory Yeah, it's, it hasn't been suggested yet. Since vaping is treated very similarly to smoking and is thought to have by the lobby some very um, shared dangers, this may not be out of the realm as a possibility. So we see the the anti-smoking lobbyists approaching vaping in exactly the same way as they do smoking. In Australia, absolutely. It's just regarded as the same kind of problem with possibly the same kind of health effects. And you would, perhaps you would have seen as well um, in some of the science journals, there have been questions raised about what level of danger does it present relative to tobacco? And usually those magazines come back with things like, well, it's lesser. We can't say it's not dangerous, but it has some danger. And as we also know, it's been promoted, particularly in the UK, as a way of getting out of smoking. But in Australia, it is treated as though it is a gateway to smoking. And so it is legislated in the same way so that we don't have people moving from vaping to smoking, uh, which I haven't seen in any of my preliminary research on that topic. But um, I haven't really done it yet, so it remains to be seen. But that is not unusual in uh, a state which has a proclaimed and declared war on smoking. Do you think that we should put e-cigarettes and cigarettes in the same sort of policy basket? I think they're quite different in terms of their the way they're embodied, the way they're understood and what they might be used for. So I, I think it's probably folly to put them in the same basket and to treat them as the same sort of thing when they've clearly got some very distinct differences. On the other hand, though, we've got the big tobacco companies turning to vaping at the same time as cigarettes becoming less popular. So yes. arguably, I mean, could you get a very seamless replacement of cigarettes with vaping? Tobacco companies are desperately trying to diversify. And if you've ever been on a tobacco company website, they say very similar things to the government, which the government does not like hearing, actually. But they say cigarettes are very dangerous for you. As an informed consumer, you should know that they cause these sorts of diseases and they will get you hooked. And once you're on them, it's difficult to get off. So they have the same advice, health advice, that the government provides to people who are trying to quit. And then they say, if you are an informed consumer and you know that and you still want to smoke, this is an excellent choice for you, right? So they, they're not being particularly resistant to that kind of narrative. And as part of it, they can then offer you an alternative which doesn't carry the same health consequences. And so it is a very clever business model. And many people would say it ought to be encouraged. Tobacco companies are generally diversifying and they own a lot of things. They own food companies, they own, in some cases in Southeast Asia, pharmaceuticals. And so they're they're not, you know, necessarily the peddlers of one evil product. They're, as all good businesses have to do in this kind of scape, diversify, you know. So it's no good continuing to sell combustible tobacco if if you're going to be legislated out of the space. So as a set of business decisions, it works. But I also think that that similarity with the government's narrative is really interesting because they are saying the same thing and they also draw equally on 
the idea of the rational consumer, that once you have the health information, you will make a particular choice. If you're the government, you assume that the person will make the choice to quit because you know it's dangerous. And if you're a tobacco company, they assume that you'll make the choice to continue because you want smoking pleasure. So they just have the same person in mind with different avenues for choice. Does vaping target or affect a different sort of social community, I feel like it has a different a different it's, appeal, I it suppose. It seems to have had more purchase among young people um, who are very, very highly and well-educated about tobacco dangers and may be more reluctant to take it up. And so vaping presents an opportunity for people to do something that's like smoking but isn't. And it may not even be that they're comparing it to smoking in quite the ways that we, we might assume. So I don't know the answers to these things yet because I haven't looked at it, but I wouldn't be surprised to learn that this is something of its own, um, not just something opposed to tobacco smoke. So with all of this sort of health concern, taxation and all of these restrictions that we're seeing come into place around tobacco. Do you think that we could be moving towards a point where it will become illegal to have tobacco? We've already had that point. Um, in the US, it was illegal to smoke at one particular juncture. So it's not the case that it, it's very tempting to see the legislation is increasingly sharp and increasingly enclosing um, and stopping people from doing it. But we've, we've already been there. Um, and like all prohibitions, it didn't work um, because people tend to find ways to do this. And there are parts of the world that are smoke-free. So Brunei, for example, is one of those places. But I know from experience that you can still do it there if you're sneaky enough. You know, So it's very hard to legislate human desire. right? So we've been in this space with alcohol before. Um, we've seen all those kind of effects of prohibition. So I think that's highly unlikely despite the uh, sometimes determined pushes to make that so. I heard there were like 15 hours of rioting in prisons in Victoria when they That's right. tried yeah, to yeah. implement they smoke-free. Do, or the, all those state places are either have become or will become smoke-free. So those are the places you can institute it where you have high surveillance, where you have complete control over the environment, and that is not easy to do in a democratic country. So that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for coming in. It's really interesting to hear someone approach this from more of a human impact and lived experience as opposed to the health concerns and the, the same old record that you hear a lot. So thanks for coming in today. Thank you. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Brief. Don't forget that we have our National Security Podcast on Wednesday. And on Friday, we'll have our usual Policy Forum pod. Thank you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.